Hi, welcome to our class podcast for American Writers One, Beginnings to 1865. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today we're discussing the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Let's meet the rest of the panel. We have a new friend with us today. Uh, Becca, tell us your name, your major, and something that you could not live without. Okay, so my name is Becca, and I'm an exercise science major, and something I couldn't live without is probably music. I'm really big into listening to music all the time. It's me focused into rock. That's kind of my thing. <laughs> That's cool. All right, and then Tess, we know. Tess, say hi. Yeah, hi, I'm Tess. Uh, everybody knows by now I'm a history major, and something I couldn't live without I think it'd have to be my Xbox right now. Uh, like, I even make an effort to take it with me when I travel. Always hoping there's a TV to hook up to. What do you play? Uh, a lot of things. Right now, um, I'm working on some big projects in Minecraft, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I really like this Japanese series, Monster Hunter. Excellent. As a total non-gamer, I feel like I'm a... I, there's like, I can't keep the note of judgment out of my voice when, when people talk to me about video games. My partner is a big gamer and uh, I think he finds it very condescending. So I'm going to try really hard <laughs> not to be one of those people. Uh, okay, so I'm Carrie. Uh, Dr. Tippin, that's what you should call me. Uh, something I could not live without when I wrote this question, I decided chapstick was the thing I could not live without. Some sort of lip balm. I'm a big like lipstick wearer. I need a lot of lip products to to live. Cool. All right. Uh, my chapstick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please apply as you go if you need to. And I think now that I'm spending all my time looking at myself on Zoom cameras, I'm like ultra sensitive about my my appearance generally. Uh, I feel a little over obsessed with the hair and the face at the moment. Okay, <laughs> let's do a quick summary of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, Becca, you wanna take the first round of kind of summary for us? Yeah, so um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Gar God was a sermon that uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, spoke in 1741 in Connecticut. It was basically like, it's often considered like the, revival of the second round of revival in colonized America. And he started with um, the verse Deuteronomy 32, 35, talking about how the Israelites were punished by God for basically disobeying him. And he was basically saying like as a nation or whatever community he considered at this point um, was falling away from God's principles. And basically we, they need to get back on track or else they're going to be burned in hell eternally. And he's uh, pretty, he, they said he actually spoke this one calmly. However, his like words in it were very forceful. It was basically, it started with um, four points that he was making that it's basically like, we're all sinners, we're all going to die if you don't repent. And then he spoke into different doctrines that we deserve to die and how it's not God's job to make sure we um, are ask for repentance for our sins and that we are wicked in our own being and we cannot get into heaven without his 
um, acceptance and forgiveness. And then he went into like an application, which was basically like, we need to spread this word, which was often a creating as, um, he created a lot of this, what you would call like disciples or missionaries during this time. So they tried to spread his message and the message of God's word through like colonized America. So yeah, it was basically a very like forceful, hey, you guys are real big sinners and need to repent for everything or you're going to die. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. <laughs> Tess, would you add anything to that? Uh, I think Becca definitely hit all of it, like the, uh, I feel like the structure of this is really important, and you pointed out the distinct sections, and then, uh, yeah, like that verse in the beginning kind of sets the tone for the whole thing, and, uh, I thought it was interesting, like, that our anthology recorded it. Yeah, 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 so say a little bit more about that last bit, Tessa, or, like, what's surprising about it showing up in an anthology like this? Um, for those who, like, can't see the text, it's set up, um, right below the title, um, but, like, set off from everything else that Edwards is saying, mm -hmm. and I thought it was, like, like, a neat way to call attention to it. It's almost like, um, like a tagline or maybe even a subtitle. Yeah, like an, uh, what's it called? Epi epigraph? I think so. <laughs> Epigram? Epigraph. Oh, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that we, we think of it as a spoken, uh, a spoken sermon, and certainly it is, but it's also a printed sermon. And what we're seeing in our text is that sort of published printed version. And I think that's a really interesting, I'm always more interested in the publishing context than even the text most of the time <laughs> in the kind of early American stuff. But like a, a sermon itself is a time-bound, time-limited, place-limited, audience-limited kind of ephemeral experience, um, but not here, not now, right? It's printed, it's uh, cemented, it's solid, right? And the fact that we know he read from these notes, like from a script, lets us know that like that moment is the same as this moment. Uh, and I think that's really interesting and not at all how I think contemporary pastors and speech, speech people do, right? We don't often get to see the exact recording of it as they gave it, uh, which is pretty cool. Do you guys have any questions about it? Anything that you read that you, you weren't sure about or wanted to kind of clarify? that I got it pretty well, but I guess we'll see as we go further on if I'm actually understanding everything. <laughs> that sounds good. Becca, anything? Yeah, I think I'm the same. I think I understood most of it. We'll see if anything pops up as we discuss. Yeah, I think definitely compared to what we've read so far, it is the easiest to understand on the sentence level, right? And, and maybe even on the the whole argument level. Like, so the words are all spelled the way we imagine them to be spelled today. And the, like, there's just so much of it that's a bit more modern that maybe, maybe it is a good and easy one to understand. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about your question. So Becca and Tess, you both were interested in this as sort of like a rhetorical persuasive document. And I think that's a really smart uh, question. So Tess, I'll let you go first. Kind of what were you thinking about uh, as far as the like rhetorical nature of the sermon. 
Yeah, so a uh, shout out to Mr. Lockwood for AP Language. I, <laughs> the reason I signed up for this podcast was because I've read this before. Oh, okay. uh, it was 11th grade in high school. It was one of the first things we had to uh, do like a rhetorical analysis essay on. Cool. And uh, I remember being like pretty amazed when he talked about how uh, Jonathan Edwards' delivery was very like dour and solemn and like how shocking and powerful that would have be would have been to like make his audience like cry out and weep during the service yeah. uh, so I really wanted to look at it as like a speech um, he's trying to be persuasive he's trying to win people over uh, ultimately to salvation I think I was looking most at the structure like yeah. he really structures it like an argumentative essay uh, he has like an introduction he sums up I'm gonna tell you why God is so angry <laughs> and then his doctrine is uh, here's all this evidence that I have that God is really angry. And then the application is like a call to action. Like today, uh, you guys can be saved because God's really angry. Yeah. And it very much flows in the way, and I'll talk about this in a minute, uh, and kind of this idea of reason and logic being applied to scripture. So he kind of takes the scripture and he says, you know, logically, these are the parts of what that is actually saying. Here's what I can kind of deduce from that. And then if that is all true, then here is our big belief that we can take from it. And if we believe that, then logically it follows, we must do these things. So even though it is very much a, an emotional sort of appeal, it's also really very logical. Yeah. Uh, Becca, you had kind of similar questions. What do you want to talk about there? Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I also read this in 11th grade, but I actually read it in AP World History as a primary document. So I also had a little bit of background on this. Um, but I thought it was interesting how, like, I like how it was, like, they talked about, like, in the introduction, how it was, like, an emotional piece, and how he brought it with Summer, but also, like, I like that he, like, almost instills, like, guilt and fear into the readers, like, through this, like, basically, like, you have to do this, or you're gonna die throughout it, and he wasn't, he didn't, like, soften the blow at all, he used scripture, he gave verses, he was, like, this is what's gonna happen, and um, but the way his, like, argument worked, like, apparently his audience was very receptive to it, and it often, and it all went into, like, further push of his sermon, which I thought was interesting, that, like, his me message, like, carried, that he had that power. Um, yeah, I think it was definitely a very, like, almost, like, driven to, like, hit the heart, almost, that's kind of how the sermon worked. And I also liked how he, like, split into parts for, like, the average person to understand. He didn't really talk over people, which is different than a lot of other people lecture or sermon or preachers preach. He, and he, like, also kind of, like, laid it out and, like, here's the steps you can do to change your life, and here's what to take from it, which I thought was also an interesting tactic. It made people more receptive to it, I believe. Yeah, I'm so interested in how you've both talked about all of the different appeals that he's using, like the logical appeal to the brain, the emotional appeal to like the amygdala, the like fear center. <laughs> Is that right? I think so. Okay. <laughs> like the fear center, the guilt center, right? Um, those sort of emotional centers. Um, and then also like just being accessible 
we've already kind of established, right, that it might be more accessible than anything we've read so far, even into the 21st century accessible. So imagine how accessible it would have been in 1740, right? And accessible both in terms of understanding the words, but also in your hands accessible. Mm -hmm. How wacky. Do you want to talk more about one of those things for a little bit? What, what sort of interests you most? The logic part, the pathos part, or the maybe accessibility part? Uh, I think I have an interesting point to make about the logic. Let's hear it. Um, I'm looking on page 352 in our text. The yep. second paragraph starts, uh, your wickedness makes it, makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And uh, looking at that, I don't know what to call it, maybe, a, I guess like a metaphor. He's yeah. like describing uh, your inherent sin almost as like gravity, yeah. like uh, you're tending towards hell downward, like towards the center of the earth and God is the the uh, opposite force holding you up. Uh, so I thought that was like an interesting, like again, like really, like a, there's like science and logic coming into how he's explaining this to people. Absolutely, that's a really good point. And I think it's interesting that like by 1740, we have people like uh, Jonathan Edwards who has like a university education and he uh, writes some other stuff actually about science. Uh, he's really very interested in science. So I think it's cool, Tess, that you brought that up. I hadn't really paid attention to that part of the, sort of, like obviously the metaphor simile analogy, because it's constant. He's constantly talking in metaphor um, or sort of a comparison and he's kind of mixing them up too. So like sometimes you are, um, you know, in a hand on top of fire and it's fire that's the problem. And sometimes you're on like slippery ground and it's falling down in gravity that's the problem. And sometimes it's water that's the problem. Uh, the wrath of God is like great water that are damned for the present, like damned, like backed up, and then uh, they will come get you. There's water. There's an arrow that has been drawn, right? So all of the, like the compounding of these metaphors, um, but how interesting that there's a science behind it, right? And that the idea of a gravity being a, a, a biblical, supernatural, divine force is really very interesting to me. Yeah, cool. Cool, cool, cool. And there's an emotional component to that too, right? What's sort of the emotional side of that particular metaphor of being heavy as lead? I don't know, Becca, uh, do you have a thought? Um, yeah, it's kind of like, oh no, it's kind of like a guilt that's on your heart that you almost like have to escape. Like, I feel like there's like something, he's like trying to explain that there's like an invisible force pulling you down, kind of like how he relates it to gravity because that is the invisible force that pulls you down. But there's something like pulling at your heart's heart almost. Yeah, and a bottomless gulf is, yeah. <laughs> is the other side of it. Yeah, interesting. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, and then Becca, you wanted to ask a little bit more about kind of the the future influences. Do you want to say more about what you're thinking there? 
Yeah, because um, this is kind of, like I said before, it was kind of the start of the like second awakening, which in um, colonial America was like the second push towards Christianity. And it was, I know like this was a lot of when like missionary work went out to like spread this message and stuff like that. And I thought it was interesting how a lot of these practices that are mentioned like in a sermon are still in common uh, in modern Christianity today, like basically like how that you were all sinners, we have to repent for our sin or we're going to hell is a message that's brought up in Christianity all throughout. That's what you have to follow. And then it was also that um, basically like his encouragement to spread it is often discussed within Christianity, how we need to make like disciples and like spread the gospel and spread his word. So I noticed how a lot of the themes are coherent with that and also like he has a lot of like although we like maybe damned like there is like hope for us if we do in christ which is what yeah. a lot of modern christianity like looks for that like almost like fail safe if you trust in god you'll get to heaven kind of thing which is what kind of is like thrown throughout this yeah so that balance of like wrath there's a motivation to act like act now act now and then also like a hope of you know, if you act, it will be good for you, right? Yeah. So that benefit, that risk, there's a risk coming to you and a benefit coming to you if you change, right? That kind of motivates on both sides. Yeah, 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 cool. Yeah, Tess, do you see anything sort of lingering, any lingering influence from this piece? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, what denomination Edwards was, but I was thinking, especially uh, in the doctrine portion of the sermon, yeah. There seems to be um like the argument for predestination. Mm -hmm. like, uh, God already knows who's gonna accept Christ and who won't. Like he's just waiting for the moment we when he can finally cast you aside. And uh I know that that's like a Calvinist belief and mm -hmm. there's still a lot of um like depending on your denomination, like there's like a little more literal reading and yes. uh, I want to I flipped through while you were talking to remind myself for sure he's definitely a Puritan minister okay yeah so uh, they also had beliefs like that like we talked about yeah. last week um I definitely think that it fits in the same vein and while mm -hmm. like modern day Christianity isn't so fire and brimstone um I could imagine he was like the 18th century equivalent of like an evangelical minister. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you use that phrase fire and brimstone because it comes from this particular piece, right? We have that phrase because of this piece. <laughs> so that's definitely an influence that he's had. I was thinking about how the structure of the piece is very much like the structure of even a modern sermon. Um, again, I, I told you last week, I, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, which is definitely an evangelical branch of Protestant uh, stuff and it, it, it almost always had that factor of like read the scripture just like interpret the scripture apply the scripture right uh, here's what it says here's why that what that actually means like on a word-to-word -word basis like do a little translation of it and then like through metaphor even explain how that can kind of uh, influence and then finally that call to salvation right the end of a sermon is almost always that same structure of call to action, call to rededication, call to salvation. Um, I absolutely still see that going on. <laughs>
Cool. Okay. So I wanted, if we have time, to talk a little bit about the idea of reason and the idea of awakening. So both of you have mentioned his, his position in the great awakening. Uh, and I'm really interested in that word awakening. <laughs> Why awakening? Uh, and we've already kind of talked about that logic that, that runs throughout. And I wonder if you see a connection between those two things. It, why awakening or the great awakening? Do you have a guess? Um, I kind of think it's because it's like when colonized America like focused more on like they realized like they fell off the path of religion more mm. throughout like colonizing and like doing everything and it was kind of like a revival into like getting more into back into like a religion or going into a church and like especially since like a lot of the people um, moved to America to get a um, like away from that religious controlled by the state this is kind of like the revival of forming a new like freer religion mm -hmm. in their state because um although like christianity was a lot of parts of the foundation of like america and stuff um modern america but it wasn't enforced by the state which was something new for them Sure, sure. Or, or maybe like more enforced by the local state than the, yeah. the national colonial state. Yeah, yeah. So like, I remember at the end of the Bradford, Pil the Pilgrim's piece, at the very end of that account of the Pilgrims, he's kind of talking about how, you know, now that we don't rely on each other for survival, and we've sort of gotten a little success, and we've moved from the center, people have stopped coming to church. And I worry about what that's going to do to us, Bradford says. So I feel like this is is exactly what you're talking about, Becca, like that return to the original uh, kind of bonding thing, right? We talk about imagined communities uh, several times, right? The, the glue that held the community together in the beginning was religious in nature. So maybe the glue that can keep us together at, or rebond us together as we sort of enter a new era, maybe it can be the same kind of glue, right? That same kind of uh, awakening or revival. Yeah, Tess, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that sometimes I get the awakening and the enlightenment confused. <gasps> the because, next thing on my slide. Cool. Because <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> uh, they're both like pretty common. Uh, I don't know what you call that, like a comparisons. Yeah. To, yeah like transitioning to a different way of thinking or like coming back to the correct way of thinking. Yeah. And they actually intersect in time. I think that's really interesting. So the 1700s uh, is sort of the beginning of the age of enlightenment. And we're in 1730, 1740, uh, when this sort of great awakening is happening. And I really do see them as, as intersecting movements because of the things that you've pointed out already, Tess, about how Edwards is interested in science. Um, and, and science is a part of that age of enlightenment, that understanding of scientific fact. Um, he's really interested in logic and the way that he's applying reason to scripture, I think is definitely, a, you know, something that he's inheriting from the age of enlightenment or the age of reason. Uh, and I think it's so fascinating that he does not really, he doesn't seem to see a conflict in science, reason, religion. He sort of 
thinks like they, they seem to be working together really well for him actually that he can apply reason to scripture and he can think of of science as well we didn't read this i didn't assign it but um at the very end of our text where the the, the next piece uh, is called images or shadows of divine things and it's just a list of like natural things that he saw happening and he's like that's a symbol uh, of god so he's talking about like the like space and the stars the heavens being filled with glorious luminous bodies is to signify the glory and happiness of the heavenly inhabitants and amongst these the sun signifies christ and moon the church uh so when he looks at like the science of space which is totally being revitalized in the age of enlightenment he's like he sees god in it and it, it it's not a conflict for him he totally sees them as unified. Do you have any reactions to that or any other places where you might see that happening in what we read today? Yeah, I think like throughout it, he uses a lot of like, um, Tess discussed earlier with like the gravity thing, which I found mm -hmm. was interesting. I feel like it made it like more applicable for people to understand because it was like, they didn't have to choose science or religion. It was kind of like a correlation of both, which was a new concept at the time, totally. which I think was really important to like add to that, like awakening that you're allowed to have these beliefs and like they still align with your religious beliefs as well as knowledge we know as today. Yeah, sort of like the best of all worlds. Yeah, yeah. any other thoughts on that test? Um, yeah, I was thinking that, um, I, I think I've looked at the Enlightenment more than the Great Awakening, but, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, like, him being an example of a Great Awakening sermon, I think it's really interesting that he is making these logical arguments and, um, bringing in, like, science, um, in correlation to his religion, because, you know, Becca said it makes it more accessible and uh, he's like aligning his beliefs with the beliefs of the times um, to like win people over in a lot more ways than one. Yeah, yeah, it's a rhetorical move, right? It's all about like how many audiences can he tap at once? Yeah, that's super smart. Yeah, here's another thing. So we skipped over it this time. I, I Maybe you can complain about it later, but I, I usually teach a couple of Salem witch trials things uh, and it, it just looms so large in students' imaginations. Sometimes I think you forget to read anything else. Uh, but this is about 50 years after the Salem witch trials. So maybe that has something to do with it, <laughs> right? That 50 years ago, we were, you know, hunting witches, like the, the Edward's father or whatever was a part of that. So, so it's like just the next generation down. And I can imagine why they would be invested in reason. Like, right, Becca, you're kind of smiling. Do you want to yeah. add anything? <laughs> yeah, because it's basically like, 50 years ago, they would, like, persecute anyone that would, like, go against, like, the doctrine religion, and, like, a lot of the practices we know today were just acts of, like, medicine or, like, even just science that we didn't understand at the time, Yeah, and that was kind of a cause for a lot of persecution, so it's almost like the revival that we, like, don't need to, like, follow just the doctrine we're allowed to have more of a spiritual belief and still respect and acknowledge and understand science as well it's not going against yeah. our religion it co-aligns with it which i think was something they probably needed like before this 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like the attempt to apply reason to something like witchcraft, uh, it, it, it was, you know, it didn't work, right? They were talking about evidence. What kind of evidence is admissible in a court of law? Um, and, and they couldn't quite come to a good solution <laughs> at the moment. So 50 years later, I can totally see why they would be invested in a religion that em embraces reason or, or that embraces logic. Yeah. Okay, great. We have just a few more minutes. So we'll, oh, we have lots of minutes, actually. Uh, so the next idea that I wanted to talk about to kind of connect to course themes was the idea of uh, the Commonwealth of Israel. So I brought this up the last time we talked about like the pilgrims and the promised land metaphor. Uh, so I'm looking on page 357 in our, our thing. He's talking there. At the, it's almost the end. Um, next to last paragraph. There are not many here that have lived long in the world. Uh, oh, sorry. Are there not many here that have lived long in the world that are not to this day born again and so are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and have done nothing ever since they have lived but treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. So I'm, I'm really interested in that phrase, Commonwealth of Israel, and I bet you can guess why. One, because Commonwealth is another name for nation. <laughs> uh, and also it ties us directly into that promised land metaphor, right? So what do you think? What does it mean for a church to be a Commonwealth of Israel on any sort of level? Do your best. Take a stab. What do you think? Uh I think it's interesting, like the choice of the word commonwealth, because uh, yeah. when I think of that today, like I think of uh, like the common, the British commonwealth. Mm -hmm. So um, like it's like in my mind, it almost implies like disparate communities that are still connected by the fact that they're like united under Israel. Um, so like it's a like it's a metaphor for God's chosen people who kind of exist everywhere and aren't necessarily like all together on the same soil. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. So it's not like a continuous geographical country, uh, but that there's a, a commonality of identity in it. Right. And imagine community, if you will, perhaps. <laughs> Becca, what do you think about that? Commonwealth. Um, yeah, I think uh, similar to Tess, I think it's, like, important to acknowledge that he's, like, discussing that, like, um, although, like, Israel is not, like, it's not the only place where, like, it's God's chosen people, now it's, like, spread out, and, like, more and more people can come to him, I think that was kind of his point, he used a lot of, like, Old Testament, like, scripture during the time of, like, the ex this and stuff, which I think was important, since, like, he was relating it to how, like, they exited, from Europe so like they moved to a new land similar to like the Israelites and they still are God's people I think was kind of like what he was trying to get at yeah totally totally I think that's really interesting then in terms of their actual geopolitical life though right they belong to a colony that belongs to a nation <laughs> but they're really presenting their their identity as common to an ancient almost culture right as maybe more important we didn't talk about this i usually have a slide about it about um all the different times he talks about earthly kings and earthly princes did you sort of notice any of those things what do you think what what does it really mean to be a citizen of massachusetts and also a commonwealth of israel any thoughts on that 
Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, like not. I don't really remember when it started, but the increasing persecution of Catholics because mm-hmm. uh, their higher allegiance would be to the Pope, right. not uh, who lives in Rome, not to like the government of whatever nation they reside in. So uh, I think that he's definitely arguing that your membership to the Commonwealth of Israel should like supersede everything else um it's like the one thing that really matters it reminds me a little bit of the language of that mayflower compact too right like king james fine but like king james because of god right and and then you can kind of keep that uh that loyalty yeah any other thoughts on that becca what do you think um yeah because i think I mean, I don't know specifically, like, his view on government, but, like, a lot of people during the time was very, like, felt controlled or, like, felt like the leaders were corrupt. So, like, it was kind of, like, the movement. And and I was looking at, like, it's in the second to last paragraph. It's, like, are you guys going to basically become children of the devil or children of the holy king? So it was, like, who are you going to align with? So it was, like, even, like, he just, he skipped, past a lot of the worldly earth and was like, who are you going to align with spiritually? Which I thought was important. Yeah. And I think we can maybe guess a little bit of his political, you know, ideology through there just by the, oh, I can't even remember. Shoot. Mm, Did I highlight it? There's a part where he's like, the kings are like worms that you can step on. Oh, here we are. I'm on 354. Um, okay. The, in the middle of that section, the very, the subject that very much enrages an arbitrary prince is liable to suffer the most extreme torments that human art can invent or human power can inflict. But the greatest earthly potentates in their greatest majesty and strength, and when clothed in their greatest terrors, are but feeble, despicable worms of the dust in comparison of the great and almighty creator and the king of heaven and earth. It is but little that they can do when most enraged, and when they have exerted the utmost of their fury, all the kings of the earth before God are as grasshoppers. They are nothing and less than nothing. Both their love and their hate is to be despised. They are nothing and less than nothing. They are worms and grasshoppers, and they can torment you as much as they want, and they're nothing. Nothing and less than nothing. That's a pretty clear statement, I think. (laughs) Political value? I were so when I was looking for it, I could only remember I could remember worms and crickets. And I was like, oh crickets, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, what are your reactions to that passage? Yeah, he's definitely like stating like basically throughout the whole thing, like you need to not focus on your like worldly leaders and because they're and basically like he said they were pretty corrupt and probably gonna go to hell was basically what he was saying a lot of it. Yeah. And he was like focus on the real king that your holy master basically. Yeah. They're arbitrary princes. Their whims are arbitrary, right? They sort of go away. Yeah. Smart. Okay, talk about the biblical promised land part. So the, the, the verse that he starts with comes from that section. When he talks about the Israelites, he's talking about those Israelites, the ones who are wandering in the desert and the ones that are promised uh, this other land. So do you see any other connections? Why pick this passage 
to make this argument. Do you see any, any reason why he might use that to appeal to the audience? Or any connection with our pilgrims that we talked about? Uh, yeah, I think you could really tie it into uh, the tendency, especially for um, around this time with the, uh, like they probably have the King James version of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, I'm learning about that in another class. And we talk about how um, like it's really used to knit the Old and New Testament together. Like the Old Testament um, is like the Tanuk and the Hebrew Bible. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily meant to be paired with uh, the Christian theology. But um, especially during this time, they really had the tendency to read the Old Testament as like a prophecy for the New Testament. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And then when you add in sort of old world, new world, that seems to be like, and, and they're definitely trying to make that continuing metaphor, right? That was this and this is the same, right? Yeah, cool, cool, cool. And I, I think it's just more evidence of worldview, that it's not just a metaphor anymore, right? It just becomes uh, like when you're a hammer, everything is a nail. When you are a promised land <laughs> believer, everything is a part of that same story, a part of that same promise. So it doesn't surprise me that he would use, would like relate this group of people to the Israelites in a commonwealth, like a national name, as well as like that, that imagined community of what their struggles are our struggles. Their God is our God. Their promises are our promises. Um, and, and so we're like, we're the same. I don't know. Okay, great. Um, any more thoughts about that? That's the last question I have. Um, one other thing about like, um, like referencing like the Israelites yeah. was we used them a lot at the beginning to like be like God punished them for being wicked and like since we're the same he will do the same and yeah. he used a lot of scripture from that which I thought was like important it was kind of more like appearing to like his fear side of it and then like his relationship to like how similar we are with them yeah yeah so maybe again tying back into that idea of reason right uh, an analogy i think i think we need to spend more time on analogy in here and how important analogy is not just in like how to shape the text in ways that are interesting to audiences but the actual analogy of understanding what language is right <laughs> that language is analogy um and how that's driving his whole logic, like the logic of of the world is analogy to him. Uh, I don't, I don't quite know how to finish unwrapping that thought, but it seems big. I don't know. Any reactions to analogy? <laughs> yeah, no, um, something like I haven't discussed, but I wanted to discuss was yeah. like how a lot of places, I know it's like in the fourth doctrine and then like the seventh, the seventh doctrine and stuff was basically, he's like, your life is short. Um, and that was basically like over our arching principle of like his analogy was, you don't know how much time you're going to have. And if you do not repent now, you could easily die, which I thought was like an interesting like thing he made throughout the whole thing. And then he like kind of like used the Israelites journey a lot through this too, like mm -hmm. discussing like first they were with God, like we 
were more religious back then, then they sinned against God and therefore was punished. And since we're in that stage, we need to stop now or we're going to be punished like them. Yeah. They've already like seen the end of the movie, right? Yeah. We, we know how this ends if we don't change our ways. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm into it. Any last thoughts, Tess? What do you want to talk about for our last two minutes? Yeah. I, uh, I think I want to point all the way to the end of the text, actually. Yeah. The last paragraph. Um, the last two sentences go, the wrath of yeah. Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Uh, hasten, escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape the mountain, lest you be consumed. Yeah. And uh, I think, like, it's kind of like a mic drop to end on such a powerful <laughs> Bible verse. Uh, like, he's making the comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah, which were two cities destroyed by the wrath of God for being so sinful. Yeah. And, um, he gives them, like, a same commandment that the angels spoke to Job, like, uh, haste for your lives and don't look back. Right, and we also know what happens to the people who look back, right? Um, you know, the story of Lot's wife who turns into a pillar of salt for looking back. Yeah, there's, there's so many allusions bound up in those two sentences. It's really, I think, a, an evidence of how well he knows the scripture, right? That at any moment he could pull from all over the Old Testament, all of these metaphors, and that the audience would have gotten them. They would have also known it that well, which I think is a really interesting thing too. Yeah, that's definitely a, a mic drop, like escape for your lives and don't look back. Um, now let's like sing a hymn and leave, right? That's the end of the sermon too. So it's also like escape this room um, and don't look back and do that. Yeah, that's pretty intense. I don't really know how you get out of, of a sermon like this. Like what did they do next? How, how do you kind of close uh, and whose job is it? <laughs> I actually read a little bit that uh, yeah. this is the second time that he was preaching this. And they were, he preached it to like his home church first and he went out to a neighboring town and preached it. And they were so shocked and upset that uh, he stopped near the end and had uh, like his aides go into the crowd and pray with people for their own salvation. Wow. That is amazing. That is really pretty amazing. I also was thinking about the moment. There is a, um, a footnote on the page before the last page where he's talking about, you know, in the, table, the the town next door, they've already started their revival. Like, are we going to let them beat us, right? <laughs> are we going to let them be more biased than us? Uh, that also sounded familiar to me as well. <laughs> All right, so we'll wrap up here. Any kind of media you think students should watch or anything that reminded you of the topic or any? Yeah, Tess. I think I could recommend the... It's one of the textbooks that we're using for my History of Christianity class. Um, it's the English Bible, it's the Old Testament, and it's edited by Herbert Marks. Okay. So it's a lot, it uses the King James Version text, but it also has like a preface and like maps and genealogies in it and um, like whole sections of related myths from other cultures. So if you're like into religious scholarship, it's like a really nice text. Yeah. 
I don't know if it's because I went to a Baptist college, but I did have a professor early in my English education tell me, like, if you want to understand American literature or literature in general, you need to have a working knowledge of Greek mythology and a working knowledge of King James biblical language. And if you have one of those two things or both, right, you can read all illusions, right? Everything will come clear to you if you have one of those two things. So I took that to heart and I think, I think uh, it has served me pretty well. Edith Hamilton's mythology and a little, a little Sunday school wouldn't hurt anybody. <laughs> Becca, what do you think? Anything you think students should read or watch? Um, I don't really have anything that really correlates. The only thing that mine was just like the Bible. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to decide if I know of any movies about sort of the colonial era that would be a good like demonstration of what this is like. And I don't know if I have it. I don't know. All right, cool. Well, it's been fun talking to you. Thanks for a great conversation today. I really appreciate it. And for everybody else, have a good day. Thanks for listening.